invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Nehemiah, page number 587 in your pew Bible. And we're going to be reading the first 18 verses of chapter 8. We're going to skip ahead a little bit here and go out of order uh, in acknowledgement of today being Reformation Sunday. <clears throat> chapter 8 of Nehemiah, beginning in verse 1. And all the people gathered as one man at the square, which was in front of the water gate. And they asked Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel. Then Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men, women, and all who could listen with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. And when he read from it before the square, which was in front of the water gate, from early morning until midday, in the presence of men and women, those who could understand, and all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood at the wooden podium which they had made for that purpose, and beside him stood Matthiah, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Messiah on his right hand, and Padiah, Mishael, Malkijah, and Heshem, uh, these names are challenging, Hesh, uh, Badanah, Zechariah Meshulam on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people, and when he opened it, all the people stood up. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands. And then they bowed low and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, uh, Shebatai, Hodiah, Messiah, Pelita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peliah, and the Levites explained the law to the people while the people remained in their place. And they read from the book, from the law of God, translating to give the sense so that they understood the reading. Then Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people were weeping when they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go, eat of the fat, drink of the sweet, and send portions to him who has nothing prepared, for this day is holy to our Lord. Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still, for the day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went away to eat, to drink, to spend portions, and to celebrate a great festival because they understood the words which had been made known to them. And then on the second day, the heads of the fathers, households of all the people, the priests and the Levites, were gathered to Ezra the scribe that they might gain insight into the words of the law. And they found written in the law how the Lord had commanded through Moses that the sons of Israel should live in booths during the feast of the seventh month. And so they proclaimed and circulated a proclamation in all their cities and in Jerusalem, saying, Go out to the hills and bring olive branches and wild olive branches and myrtle branches and palm branches and branches of other leafy trees to make booze, as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booze for themselves, each on his roof and in, his own, in their courts and in the courts of the house of God in the square of the water gate and the, gate, and the square of the gate of Ephraim. And the entire assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in them. 
The sons of Israel had indeed had not done so since the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, to that day. And there was great rejoicing. And he read from the book of the law of God daily and from the first day to the last day. And they celebrated the feast seven days. And on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the ordinance. Let's pray. Lord, we pray as we open your word that the same spirit who was working in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah to impress your word upon your people, we pray that you would do the same among us even this day. And we thank you, Father, that your word is powerful. It is alive, it is active. It reveals to us our wonderful Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. During my freshman year in college, I took the opportunity to go on a study tour with a group from the college I was attending. And so our group, while in Rome, uh, had a tour of the Sistine Chapel. And for those of you who have never been there, it is part of the Vatican complex. And the walls of this small chapel, it's a very small room compared to this, it's much smaller, I would say. I guess it's somewhat, I guess it's this size, I can't remember. Um, it has the four walls, and on the ceilings are these uh, exquisite paintings by Michelangelo. Now, I was not aware of it at the time, but when I was there, back in the 70s, it's been a long time ago, uh, the artwork in the chapel, when I viewed it, was coated with this layer of sort of a veneer, of darkened veneer. It, it had a, a lot of uh, soot and dust and pollution that had accumulated over the years. And since that time, curators have come in and they have applied very carefully various uh, substances in order to remove this layer of, of soot and uh, dust and things that accumulated. And now these painted murals have been restored to their original glory. They are just exquisite, just amazing. They were impressive when I saw them, but even more so now, they are truly awe-inspiring. Now, as I've thought about that, uh, the fact that they were impressive when I was there, but even more so now, I've thought about the fact that through the ages, God's word is impressive. It has been preached, it has been proclaimed, it has been translated, it has been handed down, it has been made known in many places of this world. But over the years, there have come times of compromise and carnality, various cultural uh, accommodations that have dulled the transformative impact of God's word. But there have been times throughout history in which God, by his spirit, has moved among his people and he has blown away the quote-unquote dust of neglect with the winds of revival. And there have been seasons of spiritual refreshment that have come where we see an increased zeal for God and his glory of times in which they have seen revival and reformation happening among the people of God that has spilled over into the society of which they are part. They have seen times of increased renewed hunger for the word of God and for widespread conversions that take place in ways that cannot be explained, humanly speaking. Now, as I've skipped through a number of chapters of Nehemiah, I wanted to come to chapter 8 this morning because it is Reformation Sunday, and because I want to reflect upon this revival that took place among the people of God there in Jerusalem. Nehemiah was the one who witnessed this firsthand, 
He saw this remarkable work of God take place. It came as a result of just this very straightforward, clear proclamation of the Word of God. And as we do this, and as we go through this text today, it is my prayers, I've thought about this and prayed over this this week, that this account of what God did in that day will motivate us to keep seeking and soliciting and earnestly beseeching God to bring times of revival to our own church, to our own country, to our own town, to our own state, to our own country, and, and around the world that we would see some of these features of revival take place. So I want to just follow through three simple points in my message this morning to ask the question, what are the characteristics of a true revival, a work of God in bringing true reformation to his people? Well, let's start first of all in verse 1 of chapter 8. You'll notice that there's no mention here of Nehemiah orchestrating this spiritual renewal. There are several statements in the passage there to support the premise that this revival was, first of all, a sovereign work of God. You see there, for example, the gathering that was, it was a widespread gathering, all kinds of people were gathered there, uh, not just a small band of zealots of people who were uh, the, the hardcore committed, but there was a wide gathering of all sorts of ages and people there at the Watergate. Verse 1, all the people gathered as one man. This group included, verse 2, men and women and all who could listen with understanding. So it's a wide gathering of people, not just a subsection and, and, and the, the core committed, as it were. Notice also, in giving proof that this was a work of God, these people were spiritually hungry. Look at verse 1. They asked Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel. There's a sense in which this group of people had a keen spiritual hunger. They were desiring to have, uh, 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 they, their, their interest in the things of God was so obvious because notice that they were willing to stand, not sit, but they were going to stand for at least, I would estimate, four to six hours. From early morning, verse 3, to midday. And during that time, verse 3, all the people were attentive to the book of the law. It's clear that God had put this hunger in their souls for more than just peace, more than just prosperity, more than just security of having walls built around them that would therefore protect them from various forces who might attack them. This was clearly God stirring up in his people, and this was a sovereign work of God at that particular time in history. Down through the years, we know that these kinds of events have taken place that could not be explained by anything that had been schemed or planned by other people. In 1735, Jonathan Edwards pastored a church in Northampton, Massachusetts. And he, during the time of his pastorate there, began to preach on the seriousness of sin as an affront to the sovereign majesty of God and then the need that we all have and of the people of his church for divine grace that we receive through Jesus Christ. And his church and other churches in New England were visited with a powerful revival. And when Jonathan Edwards wrote an account of this movement of God, 
he published it and with the following title, and I've abbreviated the title. The title goes on and on, but I just here's the title in a summarized way. He says, A Faithful Narrative of the Surprising Work of God in the Conversion of Many Hundreds of Souls. A surprising work of God. He was not expecting exactly what happened to happen. It happened because God brought it about. Edwards and his fellow pastors knew that they had witnessed clearly God's work of intervention. And there was no other explanation for the earnestness and the spiritual hunger of the various members of these different churches. Now, since that time, a number of well-intentioned evangelists, a number of other folks who have similarly have strong desires to see the same thing repeated, they've tried to orchestrate similar movements of revival. But a true revival is not orchestrated by human planning and human strategy. Only God can create spiritual thirst for the proclaimed word of God. Only the Holy Spirit can stir up the human heart to desire the things of God. And only God can draw the affections of, of his people into the pleasantness of communing with him and understanding the joys and the glories of the gospel and of having a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's not something that can be mass marketed. It's not something that can be uh, packaged and then say, you just go ahead and do steps one to 10 and this will take place in your church, in your society, in your neighborhood. I'm told years ago that the Welsh revival that took place in 1904, I'll talk about that in a moment, that there were the beginnings of the movement of God within that part of the world when Evan Roberts began by just praying to God, Lord, bend me. Lord, bend me. By that he was saying, Lord, you work in my life. Change me and make me into the person you want me to be. Make me indeed sensitive to your word. As your word speaks, may I bend and conform to it and therefore humble himself before him. He began to pray. And that was the beginning as God began to answer in a powerful way. I would urge all of us, make that our prayer. Lord, bend me. Lord, use me. Lord, uh, revive me. Lord, do your work in my heart in your own sovereign way. Secondly, I would just point out that as Nehemiah here records this focus of all the people who were there, they, they began to gather all this extended time was devoted to really primarily one thing. It was really the reading of the Word of God. And if you look at verse 8 there, you'll notice that what was done there was done to ensure that, there could, that when the Word was read, it was understood. It wasn't just read as something that was a uh, rote, just repeating of words that didn't mean anything, but they were translating it to give the sense that they understood what was read. Now, several commentators have pointed out at this point in history that the common language of the people who gathered there on that day was Aramaic, and that what was being read was Hebrew, the Hebrew Torah, first five books of the, uh, of the Bible. And so it's like taking something written by Chaucer, if you will, uh, who it's, which is before Old English. I mean, it's a very, very strange-sounding version of English. 
Um, if you read Chaucer, it's then say, okay, I'm going to now give it into modern English so you can understand it. That's sort of the same process of what was going on because the point here was that these Levites positioned themselves throughout the crowd explaining the reading so that they could understand it. And so the point two here I'm trying to say, first point was that it was a sovereign work of God. Second point is that this movement of God, this revival, was sustained by the word of God. The word of God. Expository preaching is preaching that strives to emulate this pattern. Expository preaching is preaching that expounds and tries to make clear the biblical passages in their context, that we follow the rules of grammar, we follow the rules of the history and the background and understanding and using those as our method of interpretation. And rather than selecting various popular topics to preach on, uh, to focus on only a favorite verse or two that people may like and really sounds very encouraging to our hearts, but expository preaching seeks to cover a wide portion of God's Word and then to draw out from those portions the meaning of the passage. And sadly in our day, there are many people who are being fed in various churches in today's world a, spiritual, a diet of spiritual junk food where they hear man-centered preaching focused primarily on how to improve your life or how to promote a positive thinking way of looking at life. And many churches today offer these feel-good messages that oftentimes tickle the ears of those who have no appetite for sound doctrine. Much contemporary preaching rarely offends modern sensibilities. Modern-day preaching rarely, if ever, addresses unpopular topics like the depravity of man or the wrath of God or the sovereignty of God. But expository preaching makes its way through all sorts of extended passages, entire books of the Bible. That's what I've tried to do here for years, is to make our way through books of the Bible and not just pick favorite verses that seem to make uh, people feel good. Now, this kind of preaching avoids the dangers that oftentimes can come if we just preach on what we like to preach on, and that is where you have theological hobby horses. You pick a topic that is interested that person thinks is quite interesting and, and overemphasizes it, perhaps. Or you can lead to some sort of, of subjective sentimentalism. You just sort of preach on things that make us feel good and appeal to our emotions. But notice that the text in expository preaching is proclaimed and explained in such a way that it's understood. It makes sense in light of its background, in light of the person who's speaking it, in light of the actual words that are used there. And God's word is held up. God's word is proclaimed as the authoritative revelation of God. It is expository preaching that must be proclaimed with power. It's not enough just to have a clear understanding of the text, but we need the Holy Spirit to be a part of this process. And so look what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 when he describes his approach to ministry. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, page 1357. Here's Paul explaining what happened in his ministry there in Corinth. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1. When I came to you, I did not come with superiority of speech or superiority of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. 
And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not rest on the wisdom of men, but on what? The power of God. He emphasized the gospel. He emphasized what God's revelation was. It's interesting if you go back and you look at prior to the Reformation, virtually all the churches, particularly churches of, associated with the Church of Rome, various cathedrals, the point, the central focal point of all those cathedrals was one thing. It was an altar upon which the Mass was offered. But the Reformers insisted that the focal point of Protestant churches is the pulpit it is not just merely a lectern. It was indeed an elevated pulpit. If you look through Europe and you go back and look at some of these ancient uh, Protestant churches, old Protestant churches from beginning in the, in the mid-1500s on down uh, th through the years since then, they oftentimes would build an elevated pulpit quite high in order to symbolically show that the Word of God is supreme here. Not tradition and not what other church councils have said, but it's the focal point of what God's word says to his people and proclaiming clearly the word of God. And I would imagine that this passage here in chapter 8 of Nehemiah must have played into the thinking of this major modification that the reformers realized was needed in their day. And here in this crowd gathered in this time of Ezra, they gather and the platform is built so that the platform allows the person who is reading the word to be above the crowd so that he can project out over the crowd and to show that the word of God is indeed the supremely important revelation from God. And times of spiritual refreshment will not come. Any kind of spiritual refreshment will not come apart from the centrality of the authoritative preaching of the word of God. And so outward change is not going to take place apart from the change in our understanding and in our thinking. People are oftentimes waiting for their emotions to change first. No, you start with your mind. You change the way you think and the way in which you believe. And then from that comes the fruit of changed emotions and changed behavior. One of the weaknesses of the church today is due to the fact that the Word of God has been diluted. Various attempts are made to make the Word of God relevant rather than giving it full effort giving full effort to making sure that the God-breathed, inspired Word of God is understandable and clear. So Paul's admonishment to Timothy, in chapter 4 of 2 Timothy, he gives his word of admonition to his protege, his uh, elder in training there, Timothy. He says to him, page 4, 1416 in the Pew Bible, 2 Timothy 4.1, I solemnly charge you, preach, the word. He says, go on and reprove and rebuke and exhort with great patience and instruction for the time will come when those who are under your hearing will not endure sound doctrine. They will want to have their ears tickled. They will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and they will turn their ears away from the truth. And so we're reminded here in this text of what we need to continually affirm and and I would just again say to you, part of our church values as a church is that we are always seeking to put the Word of God at the center of what we're about. 
It is the only authoritative rule for faith and practice, and that's why it's the focal point of our worship service. Not just because you want to hear me speak, but because we want to understand God's word and grow and learn together. And so the sovereign work of God is clearly what is involved in a true revival, and also a revival is sustained by the word of God. A third observation from this text I would just offer to you has to do with the fact that there. Another indication of revival is to see the people of God surrendered to the will of God. Surrendered to the will of God. It's very interesting to see how people were beginning to be affected by the reading of the word. Verse 9, you'll notice that there's a greater sense of awareness of God's holiness, of his goodness, of his grace that God shows to his people. Verse 9 of chapter 8 of Nehemiah says that all the people were weeping when they heard the words of of the law. Widespread mourning and weeping. Why was that? As God by his spirit creates an appetite for God himself, as he empowers the preaching of the word of God, there will always follow a heightened sense of sincere sorrow for sin. Ever read some of the eyewitness accounts of the first great awakening and what the response was of hearing the word preached at that time in the 1740s. Listen to this uh, literal, accurate um, eyewitness account. Quote, we went over to Enfield, Connecticut, where we met dear Mr. Edwards, that's Jonathan Edwards, who preached a most awakening sermon from Deuteronomy 32, verse 35. And before the sermon was done, there was a great moaning and crying out through the whole house. People began to cry out, What shall I do to be saved? Oh, I'm going to hell. Oh, what shall I do for Christ? So the minister was obliged to stop at moments because the shrieks and the crying were piercing and amazing. When there's the movement of God in revival and when people of God are hearing the word of God proclaimed with power and God by his sovereign uh, ways is working in the midst of his people, it's fascinating to watch how it affects their lives. I'm going to give you another description of what happened in 1904 in Wales. I'm reading that the society itself was changed dramatically. We read that public public houses, another word for bars, but the bars of that society almost virtually emptied out. Men and women who used to waste their money getting drunk were now saving their money, giving it to help their churches, using it to buy clothes and food for their families instead. Not only did drunkenness disappear, but stealing and other offenses grew less and less so often that a magistrate came to a court and he found there were no cases for him to try. The police had nothing to do at certain points. Once the revival came, they had nobody to arrest. It also went on to say that the men whose language had been filthy before the, the revival, they learned to talk 
in ways that did not involve cursing and obscene language. Many of these men were miners, and it says, the dark tunnels underground in the mines echoed with the sounds of prayers and hymns instead of the oaths and the nasty jokes and the gossip that oftentimes had previously filled the air. I'm also told that the, the mules and the horses that had been involved in bringing out the different wagons of the coal once it had been dug out, that they were so used to hearing vulgar language and obscenities that they wouldn't even work, they wouldn't even move because that was the only way that they had become trained to respond. And so after the revival, things slowed down in the mines because the horses wouldn't move because they were no longer using the same vulgar language to speak to the horses. People who had been careless about paying their bills or paying back money they borrowed, paid up all they owed. People began to confess and repent of their sins. It began to change what was going on in the society. I don't know about you, but I long for that. We're not talking about emotionalism here. Notice the leaders of the crowd, how they responded to this. Look at verse 11. Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 11. Having noted the sincerity of the people who are hearing the word preached and proclaimed, sensing their repentant hearts, they urged the people then to celebrate the gospel promises of God. They were urging them to find joy in their covenant-keeping, forgiving God. They were reminding them that there is joy in knowing this wonderful God, the God who empowers them once they know God and understand the glories of his gospel and redemption they know that there is what there is a now a power empowered to serve him out of a sense of joy not because of drudgery and guilt and some sense of obligation when we're convinced by the word of God and the spirit of God that we're truly remorseful as evidenced by this true heartfelt repentance we can find joy knowing that God deals with us in grace, <laughs> that the gospel proclaims that we are people who are broken, who have our faults, we have our own ways in which we fall short of continually, but we have found grace in Jesus Christ. We have found that he has kept all the law on our behalf. So effective biblical preaching then aims toward the goal of providing its hearers with a fresh realization of God's love and God's grace and the hugely generous provisions we find in the gospel. As I thought about this account of what God did in stirring up his people, I've thought back to the, again, I'm showing how old I am, back to the 70s, of Keith Green, who was a Christian singer and songwriter. And he wrote a song that really has some very profound words that I think I identify with oftentimes. Maybe you do too. He, he made this a prayer in one of his songs. My eyes, he says to the Lord, my eyes are dry. My faith is old. My heart is hard. My prayers are cold. And I know how I ought to be alive to you, Lord, and dead to me. Oh, what can be done for an old heart like mine? Soften it up with oil and wine. The oil is you, your spirit of love. Please wash me anew in the wine of your blood. 
I wonder if you can know of a time in your heart and recently where God has, by His Spirit, taken the gospel of grace and applied it to your heart, a heart that's been weighed down by your sin, a heart that has become, for whatever reason, discouraged, distraught, filled with guilt and shame. Let me call you today to come to the Lord's table, to remember your Savior's cleansing blood shed for you. Drink from the fountain of God's mercy. Apply the medicine of joy in Jesus to your own sin-sick soul. And may the God who convicts us of sin, as we read his word, be the same God who then displays for us and shows us his mercy, a God who forgives, a God who cleanses by the shed blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. As we repent of sin, and trust in Christ for the forgiveness. We really are seeing this two sides of the same coin. And as the verse we have now for this month is to remember that God will abundantly pardon all who repent, all who come to him. We find pardon, we find hope, we find grace, and therefore we find joy in Jesus Christ that empowers us to live for him, to serve him, and to live in newness of life. Let's pray. Lord, for some of us, our eyes are dry. It can be said of some of us, our faith also is old. Our heart at times may have become hard. And for many of us, Lord, our prayers are cold. We know a lot about what we ought to be, Lord, but we need help. And so we cry out to your spirit. Take your word, Lord, apply it to our hearts. For some of us, that means you have to lead us toward repentance. There needs to be some mourning in our lives, Lord. We need to be grieving over perhaps areas of our lives where there's been tremendous compromise and many areas of worldliness. Father, we pray that you would do for us what we cannot do, and that is, Lord, give us hearts that are affected by the gospel in applying it to ourselves, Lord, to look at, keep our eyes on Christ, to find in him hope, Find in him forgiveness, find in him grace and mercy, to find in him cleansing from our past and healing for our future. Lord, by your spirit, we pray that you would wash us anew in the wine of your blood. Fill us with joy as we come to your table this day. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.